Surly. We come to the sixth interview in our series. We've been through the list of important events and achievements decade by decade, and we come today to some more general points. First of all, can we talk about the category that you've called people I particularly remember, and then follow this up with the intriguing category that you've called my regrets. And perhaps to that we can also add the category in which you could assess your own achievements against the aspirations you may have had as a young man. I found this last category to be quite enlightening when I put it to previous eminent scholars. So starting then with the first person on your list, and that would be Professor Richard Baxter, perhaps? No, I think the best way in which I can uh, approach uh, the people I particularly remember is to divide them up into continents, because otherwise the list would be rather uh, eggly-piggly. Uh, let me start perhaps first with the, the British international lawyers whom I've known. I'm going to speak uh, principally of those who are no longer living. Uh, I, I have some very nice things to say about people who are living, and maybe we might touch on them later, but for the moment let's talk about the ones who alas have passed on. I think the the ones that particularly warrant mention are the following. First of all, uh, Sir Gerald Fitzmaurice. Uh, he, he was a, a, a remarkable person, um, had a very fine mind. He was a first-class international, immensely knowledgeable. He served in the Foreign Office. He was there oh, from the early 30s right up until the time when he went to the International Court following on the uh, passing of my father. That was in 1960. Uh, and during, he, he, when I see he was in the Foreign Office the whole time, I think during the war he may have served in the Ministry of Economic Warfare because he, he became uh, exceedingly interested in contraband and blockade and such like topics. He was a, a, a short man, uh, a handsome man, with a fine head of grey hair, but um, he, he, um, he took pride in his appearance. Uh, one also had to be slightly careful because being a short man it was important never to overtower him. I recall once going to the Foreign Office for some meeting with him and he directed me to uh, sit on uh, the, the sofa, and, uh, which I did, and he then sat in a chair nearby. Unfortunately, the chair was somewhat lower than the sofa. So the result was he was beneath me, uh, and uh, the interview did not go well. But he was a very nice man, and for a while, indeed, we, we shared a flat in the temple uh, in a period from about 1960 to 1963 or thereabouts. Uh, his uh, hobby was drawing, and he was a very fine draftsman in the sense that uh, he used a lot of lines to uh, reflect the topics that he was, or the subjects of his drawings. He was also something of a philosopher, and as one can see from his writings, there's, there's a good deal of philosophical allusion there. Uh, he uh, was a, a good friend of my father's. They, they saw each other regularly and he was very distressed when my father passed away and then as I say Gerald uh, uh, Fitzmaurice succeeded him at the court <coughs> and uh, 
Sir Eddie, um, during the war, while Sir Hirsch was in the States advising the State Department on behalf of the British government, um, Fitzmaurice was in the Foreign Office. Was there any personal contact that you can recall with your father or your family at that time? Oh, I think they, they were in touch with each other. It isn't quite right to say that my father was advising the State Department. No, my father was in the United States with the, um, at the wish and with the approval of the, the Foreign Office, but for the purpose uh, of giving lectures and maintaining contact with American academics in an attempt to um, counteract a certain amount of isolationism that had grown up amongst some American academics, notably Edwin Borchard. Uh, but uh, the, the work that my father did in the United States during the war in terms of official contact was with the U.S. Attorney General in relation to the development of the <coughs> uh, American doctrine of all aid uh, to the Allies short of war. That was in the period, of course, prior to the United States' entry into the war uh, in December 1941. But uh, I don't know how much contact there was between my father and Fitzmaurice at that time, but there was nothing of a, no official contact. Uh, one couldn't say that. Let's say they were good friends, and <coughs> Fitzmaurice was a, a very close analyst of the jurisprudence of the International Court and wrote a series of fine articles about them in the British Yearbook of International Law, which uh, was subsequently carried on by Hugh Thurlway, who was <coughs> at one time one of the uh, principal legal assistants of the court and, and uh, was able to bring to the, the, the analysis the same kind of knowledge that Fitzmaurice had of the internal thinking of the court. I noticed that he was elected president of the Beagle Channel Arbitration in 1971. Yes, Fritz um, uh, was president of that. He, together with uh, Stjör Petren, the Swede, and I've forgotten who the third arbitrator was. Perhaps you can remind me. Uh, well, don't worry. Uh, but uh, no, Fitzmaurice did do a certain amount of arbitration. Uh, the Beagle Channel. And, uh, and then the uh, quite important arbitration uh, about uh, between uh, Kuwait and uh, the, it's a so-called Aminoil arbitration, uh, 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 which was uh, an arbitration relating to a concession arrangements between Kuwait and a, a foreign company. But as I say, uh, Fitzmaurice was was a very good person, very devoted, and. Uh, and then one can pass to uh, a man who was, in a way, very similar to Fitzmaurice, namely Humphrey Wardock. Uh, Humphrey Wardock actually did not begin life as an international lawyer. He was the author of a book on mortgages. But during the war, uh, he went into government service. And after the war, he was appointed, because it, the appointment was in the hands of the Foreign Office, uh, I think at that time, to the the Chair of International Law at Oxford, the Chichely Chair. Uh, again, uh, Warlock had a very precise legal mind, uh, not a philosopher, uh, not, a, not given to jurisprudential considerations, but uh, a very hard worker. Uh, I, I was able to work with him on uh, a couple of cases. 
and uh, I was always struck by uh, the amount of time he gave to the cases and <coughs> the, the closeness of his consideration of the facts. He had a charming habit of writing in pencil with a, an eraser in his hand, so he didn't write as, for example, I do, uh, boldly in ink and then striking out constantly. He would write in pencil and when alteration needed to be made he would use an eraser to rub out what he had done. Uh, like Fitzmaurice, he, he served on the International Law Commission and he was a, a popular, highly regarded person given to collecting watercolours, had a, a fine collection in his house in Oxford. Uh, I'm sure that I'm forgetting details that would add further to the lustre of both of them, but, but they were top-notch international lawyers. He uh, was more or less a contemporary of Sir Hirsch's because he was born in 1904, which was sort of the same time frame of yes, Sir yes. Oh, certainly, uh, Warlock and, and my father uh, uh, knew, uh, and Fitzmaurice knew each other uh, well. And uh, <coughs> Warlock succeeded uh, Briarly as the, the professor at Oxford. Uh, and my, my, the, the, oh, there was contact between them, particularly in relation to the British Yearbook of International Law. When my father ceased to be editor of the British Yearbook, uh, Humphrey Warlock took it over and again did a first-class job. I noticed as well, that he was born in Ceylon. Who, Humphrey Waldock? Yes. Yes, well, I, I don't really know the circumstances of his early life, but uh, um, I think, I think uh, possibly because he, his parents, or his father may have had some uh, colonial connection, I, I just don't know. Uh, many of these people at that time had some kind of overseas connection. And uh, one that uh, immediately comes to mind is Ivor Jennings. I haven't got him on my list because Ivor Jennings was not primarily an international lawyer, but a British constitutional lawyer. But Ivor Jennings, uh, during the war, uh, was in Ceylon, as Sri Lanka was then called. Uh, he was in Ceylon as a vice-chancellor of the, the university there. He was a, a very capable administrator. Uh, but uh, anyway, let's, let's go on with, with these people. So we, uh, Fitzmaurice first, then Waldock. Uh, both very, very fine international lawyers. Then we come to a third who Warren's mentioned, and that is Gerald Draper. And Draper was a completely different sort of person from both Fitzmaurice and, uh, and Waldock. Uh, they were what I might call traditional uh, international lawyers with a a wide range of knowledge. Uh, Gerald Draper's approach to international law was somewhat different. First of all, he was primarily interested in the law of war. And this stemmed from the fact that uh, before the war, he had been a solicitor. Uh, he went into the war, he was uh, an officer in the guards, and uh, he was one of those who were first into Belson upon the liberation of that camp. And it made a, a deep impression on, it, on him. He was absolutely appalled by what he saw there. Uh, he was by then serving in the intelligence, and it fell to him to interrogate quite a number of the Germans who were subsequently charged with war crimes. Uh, he wrote about the law of war. He wrote a book on the 
the Red Cross conventions. But uh, he was a man who was concerned with sometimes minute, and it appeared to some to be trifling detail. He was a man to whom people turned when they wanted a really uh, esoteric examination of a, a subject. Uh, and he appeared in a number of cases in the English courts, which required a great deal of scholarly research into the history. And, and Gerald was just the man to do that. He was uh, a remarkable conversationist. He could talk uh, hind legs off a donkey. He, he was a great man to listen to. A uh, very friendly, well-disposed person. And uh, he gradually drifted out of the, the army legal services where he had ended up at the end of the war into academia and became a professor at King's College London. Uh, again, a friendly, well-disposed person. I think he was also had a chair at the University of Sussex. That's right. I, I, he, he went on to Sussex after he, he'd been at London. Uh, and uh, <coughs> uh, this was when Sussex was just, had just been created as a university. I also noticed that he fought in the war in North Africa and Europe. Yes, very likely so. I'm not acquainted with the details of his military service. You've obviously done more research on him than uh, these people than I have. I'm really speaking from just my personal recollection of their, their character. Uh, but uh, th then we pass on to another interesting character, namely Clive Parry. Now, Clive Parry uh, was born, I suppose, around about 1917 or thereabouts. Uh, and... Uh, he, uh, I forget where he went to university, but by the time I knew him, that is to say when I was an undergraduate in Cambridge, Clive was already teaching in Cambridge. He'd become a, a fellow of, of Downing College. Uh, and again, he was slightly uh, a bizarre man. Uh, he, he, he didn't think like other people think, thought. Uh, that's not to say that his thinking wasn't good. It was simply different. Uh, and he, he had uh, uh, an almost maverick approach to some aspects of international law. Uh, his major uh, literary contribution was a, a major commentary on the British Nationality Act. Uh, but he also had some interesting ideas uh, in, in terms of the development of the sources of international law. In 1955, I can't remember whether I mentioned this earlier, I had been responsible for the establishment of a, a body of a trust called the International Law Fund. And uh, this raised money to try and promote the development of international law, and in particular research in it and the uh, production of its uh, sources. Well, uh, uh, Clive and I thought were thinking along similar lines in that time, and Clive formulated the idea of a digest of British practice in international law. Not a contemporary digest, that was something that I had uh, begun to think about and, and to implement in 1955, but a, a historical digest. And so, that, uh, unfortunately, the idea uh, never was, was never completed, but uh, with the assistance of uh, two very capable people, John Collier and John Hopkins, both of whom uh, became Cambridge academics after that, uh, he produced uh, I 
four volumes or five volumes of the British uh, Digest of International Law. Unfortunately, they're not uh, consecutive in their coverage, and nor are they, uh, uh, nor do they cover the whole subject because it was an incomplete exercise. However, his researchers uh, examined uh, the archives of the Foreign Office very closely and extracted a great deal of interesting material. It is a, a pity that the, the project never, never reached its conclusion. Uh, this principally because, unfortunately, uh, Clive died in 1982 while the project was still underway. He had one other uh, major idea, namely the, uh, the production of a consolidated treaty series that was to, to produce, reproduce all the treaties that had been concluded from any country. And these, I think, now constitute a, an impressive collection of some 150 volumes uh, which were published by his uh, friend Phil Cohen, the, the person who created Oceana Publications. They worked very closely together on that. As a teacher, Clive was somewhat um, unexpected. Uh, he, he used to, uh, how can I put it, he used in his lectures to appear as if he was thinking a topic through for the first time. And so this would lead to the introduction of some unthought-out ideas. But at the same time, he, he was um, highly imaginative and, and uh, provocative and stimulating to his audience. Uh, I went to his lectures uh, when I was doing the LLB back in 1950, his lectures then on international organization. They were, uh, they were not um, very solid. But, but they were they were interesting. Uh, but he he formed a, a very uh, a close relationship with his students. They liked him very much. And uh, his early death in 1982 was a great loss to the, the Cambridge faculty. Then I I find it interesting that in 1944 to 45. He was teaching public law in Ankara, of all places. You know, I sort of wondered how he got there in the first place. Well, I... It seems I, a, bit, I, a bit strange. I'm sorry, I, I can't hold myself out as an authority I mean, on the, the details of yeah. the lives of these people whom I knew. I, I was aware that uh, during the war Clive had been in Turkey teaching, but the circumstances were unknown to me. It seems a bit strange. I mean, you know, Turkey being neutral... Um, I really, I really no, don't know. No. Uh, you, you may speculate about that, but I, I can't uh, either uh, support or deny some possible speculations. He, he was a very, he was a, a nice man. So, in the same breath as one uh, thinks about Clive, one also thinks about Robbie Jennings, who was uh, his almost his contemporary uh, here in Cambridge, and it was Robbie Jennings who. Uh, succeeded to the dual chair of international law after my father went to the court in 1955. Uh, Robbie Jennings was a very fine man, again a, a, an excellent lawyer in the common law mode. Uh, at, at first, I would say in the early stages of his career, one had there was nothing in it that made one think this man is going to reach the eminence that he did. But it, and as Hugh Professor, 
he made no striking impact on international law except the authorship of one relatively slender volume on title to territory, very beautifully written, uh, no words wasted, and uh, a book much cited by people who were involved in subsequent boundary and territorial disputes. But then it so happened that uh, <coughs> when Robbie reached the end of his tenure as your professor had to retire at the age of 67, it just coincided at that moment with the uh, sudden death of Humphrey Waldock, who was then uh, president of the International Court. Uh, so Robbie was nominated to succeed Humphrey Waldock. And as a judge, uh, he was a very great success. Uh, very sound, uh, nothing, uh, uh, nothing, no, no, uh, no failures in his approach. And he obviously made a good impression on his colleagues. In due course, he became president of the court. And as president, was excellent. Uh, I had the opportunity when I was ad hoc judge in the Bosnian case uh, to sit uh, when he was president. And I was greatly struck by his control of the situation and the fact that he, he never wavered. He, he never for a moment uh, fell asleep or anything like that. I thought he was first class. And uh, <clears throat> he was a beautiful writer. And the, the, I mean, he, he had a very good long life, I think. He, he lived to 94, uh, and his mind was sound to the end. It was just an unfortunate accident that led to his breaking his hip, and he's then succumbed to illness in hospital. But uh, <clears throat> in the years following his retirement from the court, he wrote a number of outstanding articles about the way in which the court operates. Uh, so uh, he enjoys a, a prominent place in my recollection. So really, um, he, he seemed to follow in Sir Hirsch's wake. I mean, he was an assistant lecturer at LSE, contemporary of Sir Hirsch. In 1939, he returned to Cambridge more or less the same time as Sir Hirsch. He then became the Ewell Professor. Um, he went back to, the, to LSE at more or less the same time that Sir Hirsch did, the same way becoming a judge and then the president. Um, would, would, you, would you say that is true, you say? Oh, well, and the facts as you recite them are, are virtually all correct, except for the fact that during the war he was on military service, he was in the army, and uh, he returned to Cambridge, I think, in 1944 where again he was regarded as a very sound lecturer. You could go to his lectures and uh, if you could write down every word you would almost have a, a textbook at the end. Yeah, but uh, no, he, he, it was, he, he was fortunate uh, to, to be here at that time. Which brings me to another person who at one time was thought of as a possible successor to my father here, namely Wilfred Jenks. Now, Wilfred Jenks was an extraordinary man. He had um, got the Hewell Scholarship here back in, so it must have been 1931 or 32. My father met him when they were both, I think, uh, I don't quite know how they did meet, but they became good friends and uh, exchanged many letters over time. And Jenks went straight from Cambridge into the International Labour Office 
in Geneva into their legal department. And there he remained for virtually the whole of his life, except the last two years when he achieved the pinnacle uh, of the ILO and became its uh, director general. Uh, Jenks was an extraordinary man because he led this very full uh, life as a legal advisor. He was an excellent uh, draftsman. He was responsible for the drafting of many of the international labor conventions that when put together uh, form a, a two-volume uh, accumulation of texts, uh, very, very precise texts. But at the same time, he had a major academic interest in international and was a prolific author of articles and books. He had an extraordinary memory so that he was able, when he was so often away at international meetings, to spend his evenings in his room writing without the need to actually have books by him. When he got back to Geneva, he would uh, amplify them and fill in the details. But he, he wrote books on all sorts of topics. Uh, and at times, um, he was so far advanced in his thinking that my father, who, as I say, was a good friend to him, wondered whether Jenks wasn't a bit too imaginative because Jenks was writing about um, legal problems relating to the moon and outer space at times before there was any prospect or was any prospect of man ever getting into outer space or, or reaching the moon. Uh, his works are incredibly detailed and uh, I think he was really an outstanding lawyer. Indeed, the interesting thing about all these people whom I've spoken of so far, Fitzmaurice, Waldock, Parry, Jennings, uh, Jenks, is that they were all approximately contemporary with each other. And, uh, and they uh, formed a core of international lawyers that I think is, hasn't really been matched elsewhere in the world in, in quite the same way. Now, was he also interested in comparative law in, in South America? Uh, I'm not... I don't know about that. I mean, he was a man who had a, a wide interest in, in, in legal systems because of the necessary uh, connection between them and the work of the International Labour Organization. But I, I don't remember him having written any specifically comparative law book. He did write a book called The Common Law of Mankind or something like that, which was uh, which touched on various legal systems. But um, I wouldn't have spoken of him as being a, a comparative lawyer as such. He, he died quite young, said Eddie. He was, he was only 64 years when he died. Yes, well, that's correct. He, he was a, a member of the Institut de Droit International, which in the year he died was having its biennial uh, meeting in Rome. And he had a heart attack and, and passed away very suddenly. It was a great shame uh, because there was a lot left in him uh, to, to produce. Uh, as I say, he was, he was a fine writer and an inventive, a thinking, a forward-thinking international lawyer. Uh, I've, uh, I've omitted to mention so far the person who really um, uh, uh, wasn't the father of them all, but was the 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 teacher of them all, 
namely uh, Arnold McNair. Uh, Arnold McNair was a, a, of Scots origin. Uh, he he um, was teaching at the London School of Economics when my father arrived there from abroad as a, a young research student. And he and my father got on very well together. Again, McNair was a, a solid, down-to-earth international lawyer. He, his Cambridge LLD book was the first edition of Legal Effects of War, which subsequently uh, emerged as in four uh, editions and contained some wonderful uh, common law chapters, particularly uh, the chapter on the effect of war on contracts. And his discussion there, for example, of the law of frustration is one of the clearest and uh, most outstanding contributions to that subject. Uh, Arnold moved from uh, LSE uh, to Cambridge as your professor following Pierce Higgins, whom I never knew. And then after two years in Cambridge, accepted appointment as Vice-Chancellor of Liverpool University. And there he remained from 1937 or thereabouts until uh, the end of the war, 1945. A time, uh, a very difficult time for the University of Liverpool because Liverpool was very heavily bombed during the war by the Germans and it was not a, a pleasant place to be. But uh, Arnold, as I say, worked on legal effects of war. He also produced an extremely interesting uh, volume on the, the law of treaties based upon opinions of the law officers which he had studied and gathered together and uh, he, he'd given some systematic form to the subject. He came back to Cambridge in 1945 as uh, Professor of Comparative Law. Uh, there was a, a real feeling in Cambridge they wanted to have him back here so the, this chair was found for him but left it within, within a year, virtually, uh, to go to the International Court as the first British judge on the International Court following its establishment. And uh, there he, he remained uh, and became, in due course, president of the court, uh, noted for, again, uh, the depth and soundness of his judgments, uh, very, very much liked and respected. Uh, he remained as the president... Uh, I can't remember the years exactly, but I remember him as a small man, physically small. And it's interesting how many of these people were physically small people. Fitzmaurice was a physically short man, uh, Humphrey Waldock rather the same, uh, McNair the same. <coughs> but this has nothing to do with their quality as lawyers. But I do remember when I was a child, well, I couldn't have been more than three or four, uh, and we were living in London, as was McNair at that time. He came to tea uh, at, at our house in Warm Lane, Cricklewood, and there was a, a very fine-looking cake on the table, which nobody seemed to be eating. So I eventually uh, piped up and said, wouldn't you like a piece of cake? And McNair, who, of course, immediately perceived what my objective was, said, Shame be he who evil thinks. Uh, I was always very fond of Arnold, and uh, he, he was a great friend to my father.
and indeed, uh, in a sense, the, the, the guiding light and support of my father's career in, in England. Uh, was he um, the president of the European Court of Human Rights, the first president in 1959? Yes, he could well have been. I, I rather forgot the details. Uh, not only McNair went to the European Court of Human Rights, but also Fitzmaurice and Warlock, each in their turn, went there after they finished their term. Uh, uh, I was about to say after they finished their term on the ICJ. Well, that wasn't true of Warlock. Wardock had been, I think, on the court uh, or the commission before he went to the ICJ because it was while he was president of the ICJ that he, he died. But, uh, no, uh, as I say, this uh, diversity of judicial experience of McNair, Fitzmaurice, and Wardock was an important contribution to the development in the European court of a, a, a fine a legalistic, without being pedantic, approach to international law. And then, um, still on the, uh, the, the British international, as I, I, I have already spoken of my father at various points, so I won't repeat that. Uh, there is a lawyer who uh, could be said to be British, because uh, this is where he ended his life, but, uh, who certainly deserves mention, that is uh, Dan O'Connell. O'Connell was of uh, a New Zealand birth and then taught international law at Adelaide and uh, there he, he began writing his major treatise on international law. He was then uh, appointed from Adelaide to Oxford as successor, I suppose it must have been, to Humphrey Warlock. And uh, Dan was a, a very, uh, very able, very committed, hard-working person with interests, interestingly enough, outside international law. For example, he, he, he wrote a biography, I think it was of, of Richelieu, in his spare time. Uh, he, he, he was a, an inveterate traveler because uh, he was much sought after in practice, and he just again traveled too much and exhausted himself and died relatively early while still professor at Oxford. But uh, he, he was a a major contributor to the literature of international law in his time. He was more or less a contemporary of yours, Sir Eli. Did you get to know him when he was studying at Cambridge? Yes, he did at Cambridge, his PhD at Cambridge on state succession and produced uh, two uh, substantial volumes, uh, uh, one on uh, state succession in international and the other on state succession within the domestic legal systems of states that had undergone successions. So I knew him when he was here. I, I can't say I knew him very well. Uh, we, we gradually got to know each other better as, as time went by. I was very fond of him, and he was a nice man. There, there are other British international lawyers that ought to be mentioned, and I, I wouldn't want to, to, to leave the subject of Englishmen who had contributed to international without a word about uh, three, uh, three people who were on the professional side of the, who were solicitors uh, or barristers. I, my own career owed a great deal uh, to two people uh, from Linklaters and Paynes. One was uh, a man called Joe Addison, who had been a partner in Linklaters. Linklaters were the solicitors to the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company 
So I came into uh, close contact with him in the early 50s, and he, he was very supportive of my development as a professional international lawyer, and uh, I accompanied him and other lawyers out to uh, Tehran in 1954 for the purpose of uh, negotiating and drafting the so-called consortium agreement, which was the agreement between the major oil companies and Iran for the uh, reopening of the, the oil fields there. So Joe Anderson was a good friend to me, as was his colleague uh, John Gauntlet, also a partner in Linklater's. I mean, neither of them held themselves out as international lawyers, but the nature of their work was such that they were brought into international law in litigious contexts. And there was a third man who was also a very uh, important part of my life, and that was Sir Valentine Holmes. Yeah, Val Holmes, as he was called, he was uh, a barrister, uh, QC, and uh, a, a preeminent advocate with a special style of his own, extremely modest in court, most unassuming, and he would uh, get up before the court and say, well, you know, I don't really know very much about this topic, but... And he would then expound it in terms which uh, seemed always to uh, persuade the judges. Uh, they, they were all people worth mentioning. So I ought now, I think, to say a few words about the continental international lawyers. Uh, there were several of these that uh, deserve mention. I'm sure there are more, but I remember in particular uh, two Swiss international lawyers, namely uh, Guggenheim and Sauser Hall. Uh, Guggenheim was professor at Geneva, Sauser Hall uh, professor, it's just gone from my mind, but they were both, both very, very distinguished international lawyers, but in a way uh, quite different from the English way of thinking, uh, more theoretical. Uh, uh, as advocates, uh, they, they could not be regarded as particularly outstanding. When they got up in front of the international court, they would read from that text in a, a, a rather dull way, it has to be said, but very solid. Uh, and uh, uh, I first uh, had dealings with Guggenheim in the context of the, the Notterbohm case, and uh, as I had also with, with Sauser Hall. And both of them were very disappointed by the decision of the International Court of Justice in the Notterbohm case, which uh, followed a tack that was quite unexpected at the time, so much so that Sazahal could never bring himself to to rely on the Notterbohm case. And when I was brought into the Barcelona Traction case to assist Sazahal in the presentation of his part of the case relating to nationality of claims, it, it fell to me to exploit the value of the Notterbohm case because Sazahal just didn't want to to, to approach it in that way. But they, they, they were both very kindly men. Kogenheim uh, particularly was a friend of my father's. Uh, they, they were quite close. Uh, their, their connection with my father, and of course with other inter international lawyers, was primarily through the Institut de Droit International, uh, the institute that had been established in 1885, I think it was, and which brought together uh, biennially uh, a group of distinguished international lawyers, not more than 120 in all from various countries, but of course uh, in the circumstances of those days most heavily weighted with, with European 
and uh, common law, international lawyers. Uh, and then uh, another uh, continental international lawyer that I remember well was uh, Rollin, Henri Rollin, a Belgian international lawyer. And my contact with him again was via the Barcelona traction case because there he was the leader of the very large team that was presenting the Belgian case. He was a, again a shortish man, uh, very bright blue eyes, a uh, first-class mind, uh, an inveterate worker, and, uh, and a very strong personality, uh, and uh, uh, not a man easily to be uh, <coughs> tampered with. I remember uh, my French not being very good when the uh, group of international lawyers and other lawyers working on the Barcelona Attraction case met in Brussels on one occasion while we were preparing the case for the court. Uh, he went round the table to, to gather the views of, the, of those present and he came to me so I began uh, responding in French and after about one minute he said Lauterpark, I think it would be better if you spoke in English. <laughs> Uh, I, I liked him very much, and as I say, he, he did a great job of leading that case. It was most unfortunate that, unfortunately, the, 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 the um, built-in case uh, failed, but there it was. Uh, and then another uh, very notable uh, continental international was Roberto Argo from Italy. Again, Roberto Argo, small in stature, but uh, again a very strong personality, very proud, uh, very able, full of knowledge, uh, and I, I remember uh, coming, well I met him because he was on the other side in the Barcelona traction case, but um, <coughs> he, he, um, he didn't like to be contradicted, and in the course of the Barcelona traction case, as I remember it, and I hope that it's not an invention of mine, uh, I, uh, we, we had been discussing the Delagoa Bay Railway case and uh, <coughs> uh, he had presented a, a picture of the Delagoa Bay case which uh, I thought was wholly at variance with the true content of the case and so standing before the court I held uh, the volume containing the report of the case in my hand and I went through it uh, passage by passage to indicate where Argo was at fault. He didn't like that at all. When he got up to reply, he said, when my young friend has read the Delagoa Bay Railway case as carefully as I have, he will know not to contradict me, uh, which was an assertion that uh, produced a, a number of smiles on the face of the court and never appeared in the court's record. It had been deleted before the day's compte-rendu uh, uh, was prepared. It was a silly thing of him to say, but uh, although that was silly, uh, he, he was a, a famous international lawyer, a member of the International Law Commission. He was uh, the author of uh, a report on state responsibility. and. Uh, it was a very long and very detailed report. When I was uh, legal advisor to the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs and was sitting as their representative, as the Australian representative in the Sixth Committee of the 
General Assembly of the United Nations, I had occasion to comment upon the extraordinary length of these reports. It was not that they weren't scholarly, but it was that they were over-scholarly, and, uh, and therefore their utility was, was reduced by the fact that they were, in a sense, so cumbrous. And I made comments along these lines in the course of my observations in the Sixth Committee, which greatly angered him, so much so that he, uh, he got the Italian government to protest to the Australian government about what I had said. <coughs> it was something that I could, I could live with. But as I say, as he grew older, he, he, he grew more mellow, and we, we got on well together. And finally, amongst continental internationals, not that there aren't many more who deserve mention, I should speak of Manfred Lachs. Uh, Manfred Lachs was a, a Polish international lawyer. During the war, when he was a younger man, he'd been legal advisor to the Polish government in exile in England. And then after the war, uh, he was elected to the International Court of Justice, where he served, I think, for three terms. Uh, he became president. Again, he was a very, very shrewd lawyer, but very politically um, inclined. Uh, he, he tended to find political solutions to the cases. In other words, he was to be contrasted with somebody like, say, McNair or Fitzmaurice, who would approach a case in, in strictly legal terms. Uh, uh, Lux would do that, but would introduce, uh, if you will, a diplomatic or political element. For example, it was he who was president of the court in the nuclear test case in 1973. Uh, produced the solution that involved the court saying that the case had become moot by virtue of the various statements made by the highest authorities in France that this would be the last of their atmospheric nuclear tests. And uh, this was not a, a point that had been raised by the Australians at all. But uh, Lux seized on it and persuaded the court to, to go along with him. Uh, to, to produce a solution that avoided the necessity for the court to pass upon the legality or illegality of nuclear testing. Uh, that issue, I, th I believe, he felt, would have divided the court in a, an unacceptable way. So the court escaped from that situation by this approach uh, that uh, the case had become moot. There was no need to go into the merits on account of the statements made by the French authorities. Sir Eli, um, his career does have some similarities with Sir Hirsch. He came from Krakow, he studied in Vienna, and then he moved to London. Well, he only moved to London in the context of the war. Uh, um, uh, 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 a long time after Sir Hirsch did, but... I oh yes, he, he, he wasn't in, in any way, in that sense, comparable to Sir Hirsch. Sir Hirsch had come to, to England in 1923 uh, expressly for the purposes of r research and developing his life in England, and that's what he did. Uh, Lux, uh, although he uh, uh, came from Poland and had been to Vienna, spent his life in Poland. He was a, a, an active Pole. <coughs> he was legal advisor of the Polish Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and from there he went to the International Court. So, clearly a very trusted member of the post-war Polish government. Yes. 
I also saw that he was very interested in the theoretical niceties of the law of outer space. Yes, he, he, he was that. And uh, at that time, quite a lot of lawyers were. Not that they are today, but uh, it was a much more fashionable subject then. We've gone past that phase in the development of international law. Um, the, the, now that we've got into outer space and there have been treaties relating to its use, um, it's no longer as the allure that it had in those days. Today, international lawyers are much more concerned with, let us say, the environment and climate change and so on. Well, now, passing on from the, the continental international lawyers, whom I recall, I should mention some of the Americans. America has been prolific in its production of distinguished international lawyers. The earliest one that I remember was Charles Cheney Hyde, the author of the three-volume Treatise on International Principles Applied by the United States. Hyde had been solicitor of the State Department uh, in his earlier career and then became professor of international at Columbia University, a very respected figure. Uh, his literary style was a, a wee bit complex, but the substance was very sound, and he was greatly admired. Now, he was professor at Columbia in the, the 1940s, and the only occasion on which I actually met him was when, as a young man, I uh, went along with my father to the meeting of the Institute that was being held in Bath, I think it was in 1950. And he was a very friendly, uh, outgoing person. Uh, his daughter, uh, Betsy, married another international lawyer called Oliver Lisitsin, who had come to the United States uh, as, a, a, I think, a refugee uh, before the war. And Lisitsin also became a professor at Columbia. And uh, Charlie Hyde's own son, James Hyde, was himself a distinguished practicing international lawyer. Uh, and then... <coughs> The next one that men, uh, Warren's mentioned is um, Mandy Hudson, who was Professor of International Law at Harvard. And it was under uh, his guidance that uh, some major volumes were produced, for example, on international legislation and uh, on the, <coughs> the collection of decisions of the Permanent Court of International Justice. Uh, these were major editorial tasks in which uh, Hudson was uh, greatly aided by a, a young a refugee lawyer from Europe, uh, also from Poland, Louis Zone. Uh, uh, Zone uh, went to Harvard from, from Europe before the war, and Hudson uh, took him up and, and used him to very good f effect. And Zone was an imaginative international lawyer, uh, again, somewhat theoretically inclined but uh, he had uh, great ideas for the improvement of the United Nations, which unfortunately were unrealistic, but he was always thinking forward. Uh, as I say, coming back to Hudson, H Hudson was a very active international lawyer, active in the profession. He was also a member of the International Law Commission, which is where my father met him principally, and I met him on occasion, but I didn't really know him. Um, he, he was very much involved with the League of Nations in the 1920s, which is when Sir Hirsch was developing some of his ideas. Well, uh, that, that could be. I, again, as I, s I said earlier, I don't really... Uh, I, I'm not in a position to uh, uh, present the details of their lives. Uh, I, 
I think obviously Hansen would have been active at that time and would have had ideas in that sphere but there was no um, direct connection between Hudson and my father at that time. I don't think they really came to know each other until uh, my father and he served together on the International Law Commission in the in the 50s. Because I mean, he was 42 years old when you were born, so by the time you, you would have you know met him perhaps as an adult, he would have been well past retired. Oh yes, he, 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 I, mean, he was I see, that, that, that was so, he, uh, he, he, he lived to a, a good age. But then there are others that I would like to mention. Uh, perhaps the uh, most prominent academically in a way, certainly the one who would be very well known to all internationalists, was Mars McDougall, who was Professor of International Law at Yale. Uh, Mars again was a prolific author, a man of great imagination also imbued with a sense of what is uh, what was politically feasible but he and uh, Laswell developed a language of their own for, for writing I mean of course they were writing in English but it, it um, was a very complex language with um, some quite significant ideas often embedded in phrases that you had to understand before you could really follow the import of the, the whole volume. But MacDougall wrote uh, widely on the law of the sea and the law of treaties, a man of immense charm and charismatic quality uh, who uh, induced in his students uh, great loyalty. One of his um, most eminent students and closest followers is presently professor of international law at Yale, Michael Reisman. Michael Reisman's style is not is no longer as complex as MacDougall's style was, but MacDougall's style, as I say, had a, a special quality about it which led people to call it MacDougallese. And unfortunately, I think that that quality uh, diminished the influence that he might otherwise have had uh, in, in the wider international law sphere. But he was a great man, MacDougall, and lived to a, a good age. And then another American international of prominence in the same period was Philip Jessup. Now, Philip Jessup was a, a wonderful person, uh, a most gentlemanly and courteous and considerate individual who uh, was a professor at Columbia University following Hyde. Uh, he was also uh, very well regarded in the diplomatic scene and was for a while the U.S. permanent representative uh, to the United Nations and sat in the Security Council. Uh, but, uh, and then he went on to become a judge of the international, the American judge at the International Court, where again he was very highly regarded. And he and my father uh, uh, got on very closely uh, together. Then, uh, before I leave the Americans, there are two others I'd like to mention, three others I'd like to mention. One, uh, two of them are Harvard people. One is Abe Chase, of whom I've spoken previously in the connection with the uh, Cassie Keeley case between Botswana and Namibia. Uh, Chase was, again, a very politically conscious uh, international lawyer. He, he was for a while a uh, legal advisor of the State Department during the Kennedy presidency and was in fact the legal advisor 
at the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, very, very fast speaker, very fast thinker, uh, not a major author in the field, though he and his wife wrote an interesting book about sovereignty. Uh, uh, but he, he was a powerful figure at Harvard. At the same time at Harvard, there was another international lawyer with whom I was particularly friendly, namely Richard Baxter. Uh, Dick Baxter was a splendid person, great sense of humor, uh, a tremendously overt person, a very hard worker, I, I, always ready to give of his time. I know that he helped my father a great deal with the editing of the American cases for the international law reports. Uh, and Dick and I used to see each other quite regularly. Uh, Dick came to Cambridge as a <coughs> on a sabbatical, and we saw each other constantly. Uh, and, and Dick was co-author, uh, I think it was really his own, of the Harvard draft on state responsibility. Uh, he was also uh, an expert on the law of war, and was one of the uh, persons responsible for the revision of the American uh, U.S. Manual of Military Law at the same time as the same exercises being conducted in the U.K. with my father on the uh, uh, instructions of the War Office being responsible for the editing of Chapter 14 of the Manual of Military Law, which is the law of war on land. And it was in that respect that my father worked very closely with Gerald Draper. So, uh, as I say, Dick Baxter uh, was a close friend, and he was eventually elected uh, a judge of the International Court of Justice and, and, and most sadly he died while in office uh, of leukemia but uh, I was very fond of him. So uh, that really concludes uh, my coverage of American International. It's not that there weren't others. I mean I cannot perhaps conclude without mentioning Herbert Briggs who was uh, professor of international law at Cornell University, a very a very jolly fellow, and who prepared uh, what was, I think, probably the best in its time, the best student's casebook on international law under the law of nations, under the title, the Law of Nations, Cases, Notes and Documents. And it really gave one such an insight into the subject. Uh, Briggs was greatly to be commended. Interestingly enough, never a, a, a qualified lawyer but a very good international lawyer. And uh, I, I do remember that uh, on one occasion I was invited, uh, Dick Baxter being the, the administrator at that time, of the course on international law at the United States Naval War College at Newport in Rhode Island. And they had an annual uh, international law session of, of about ten days to which international lawyers, various international lawyers were invited. Uh, to, to teach, and I was invited, and so was Briggs. And we would meet uh, each each day to, to discuss the problems that we would be going over with, uh, <coughs> with the students. And uh, on my first night when I got there, uh, as you can imagine, uh, entering a naval war college, a big institution, as a complete stranger from abroad is a little bit intimidating. And I, I went up to my room quite early, but soon there was a, a knocking on the door. Laura Pack, he said, Laura Pack, come on down and have a drink. <laughs> so with Briggs I had a very agreeable relationship. And talking about the Naval War College, it reminds me 
of an episode with, with, with McDougall. Uh, we were discussing some problem in the law of the sea, uh, and uh, McDougall went on at some length in what I might call McDougallese. And when he had finished, I said to hey, Mac, is this what you're saying? That if it's reasonable, it's right. And Mac said to me, Ellie, he said, you know, that's the first time that anybody has ever asked my permission to translate what I said into English. <laughs> so, as I say, I have happy recollections of many American uh, international lawyers. And so I should just, I think, uh, uh, go on to say a little bit about Asian international lawyers whom I knew. Only uh, there have been several, of course, of uh, a considerable eminence. But the two I uh, knew best, really, uh, apart from the, the, the present uh, incumbent at the ICJ, uh, the two I knew best were Yuan Li Liang, who was the first director of the codification division of the uh, UN, who it was who had instructed my father back in 1948 to prepare the survey of international law that was to be the basis for the International Commission, then just coming into existence, to determine the topics on which it was going to work. Well, Liang was a, was a very a very interesting, very nice man, uh, and not a great scholar, and certainly not the, the, the hardest worker in the world, but he was very shrewd. And indeed, he and Parry got on very well together, because Parry, I remember, went to the UN for a period round about at that time, and uh, there emerged from their relationship the so-called Parry-Liang law, which is that uh, all lawyers, all international lawyers, uh, go mad or die suddenly, which unfortunately is not quite, well, well not unfortunately, which fortunately is not quite true, but um, Parry and Liang got, very well, got on very well together because both of them liked to sit around and, and chat about the subject. Uh, and then, apart from Liang, the, the one I knew best so was... Can I just ask you something before you move to the, the next scholar? Concerning Liang, in, from 1932 to 33, he was in the Chinese delegation to the Extraordinary Assembly of the Society of Nations on the question of Manchuria. And I wondered if that was the first point of contact he had perhaps with Sir Hirsch, who, who was using the question of Manchuria himself um, to point up deficiencies um, you know, in the in international community preventing wars of aggression? No, I couldn't suggest that that was the first point of contact between them because uh, Liang's involvement was uh, on the spot in the, the League of Nations. Uh, my father's connection with the Manchurian subject was as an academic writing about it from London, so they, they didn't really know each other then. But um, uh, they, I think they got to know each other probably, oh, again, through the Institute. That was really the, the, the way in which they got to know each other. And then, as I say, uh, Liang created this occasion for a much closer relationship in inviting my father to go to New York in 1948 to work on this survey. Would uh, his um, involvement in the Chinese government affairs, would, would, that, would it have stopped? in 
I'm sorry, I didn't quite hear that. Would, would his involvement, Liang's involvement in Chinese government affairs, have stopped in 1949? Oh yes, it would have been. It would have been over. Uh, his relationship with Chinese mm. government was over by then. He and he lived in America, and it was only much later. I remember seeing him as, as after his resignation from the after his retirement from the United Nations, and I asked him what he was doing, and he said he was going to go back and live in <coughs> um, Taiwan. He said, I want to die amongst my own people. He was a very nice man. And then the other uh, prominent Asian whom I would like to mention is Nagendra Singh from India. And Nagendra Singh was the second son of a Maharaja, so he was technically uh, Maharaja Nagendra Singh, but he didn't succeed to the title Maharaja of the small state from which they came, which was called Dungapur. But uh, Nagendra Singh, uh, most unusually for the son of, uh, of a, a noble family, uh, went into the Indian, serv Indian civil service before the war. Uh, he'd been up at Cambridge as an undergraduate and then took the Indian civil service exams and passed out very high, which was very unusual in those days. And by the time I first came to know him in 1950, he was already the Deputy Secretary of the Indian Ministry of Defence. He came to my father and said that he, Nagendra Singh, wanted to learn some international law. Could my father suggest anybody who could assist him? Well, that coincided with just the time when I was finishing my studies in Cambridge and going down to London to the bar. So my father suggested that Nagendra Singh and I might get together. And we had a very useful relationship for a year, uh, which consisted of our meeting for dinner weekly. He would give me dinner, and I would discuss international law with him. Then he went back to India, and uh, he, he immersed himself more deeply in international law. Eventually, it took the unusual course of returning to Cambridge as an external examinee, which was permissible in those days, for the LLB, and took the specialist international law section uh, of the LLB, uh, and got a good result, uh, all the time maintaining his position in the Indian civil service, but moving up it, until he became eventually the uh, secretary of the uh, Ministry of Transport, I think. But in that connection, uh, of course, became involved in the conferences on international maritime matters. And uh, so he then began moving in international circles. And uh, uh, he, he was an ambitious man, uh, very uh, capable uh, at uh, arranging things. So he in due course became a member of the International Law Commission, and then, if I can put it this way, he graduated from the International Law Commission uh, to the International Court of Justice, where again he, he was very successful uh, and eventually ended up as president of the court. And he too very sadly died suddenly uh, while in that position. So as you can see, I've had uh, uh, some connection with a lot of very, very impressive international lawyers in their time. Uh, now, I think you wanted me to say something about my connection with living international lawyers. Well, I'm, I'm hesitant to do that because I'm friendly with so many. But uh, there are two that I suppose I can quite properly mention. Uh, one is um, Stephen Schwebel, 
uh, American international lawyer whom I've known for uh, since 1950 when he came to Cambridge to study international law for a year. Even by then, having just graduated from Harvard, not in the law school, but from Harvard University, he'd written and published a book on the Secretary General of the United Nations, very interesting book in which he had interviewed and relied on interviews with uh, Trigva Lee, the first Secretary General of the United Nations. Well, Steve Schwaber and I have maintained a very close friendly relationship over all these years, and I have seen him progress uh, through the ranks of American international lawyers. Uh, he, he's taught at Harvard. Uh, he then <coughs> became uh, then uh, became executive secretary of the American Society of International Law. Uh, then he became one of the legal advisors of the State Department, and eventually he, he was nominated uh, as a candidate for election to the International Court of Justice, and fortunately was successful. And there he had a very long and uh, oh, I know what I left out. A uh, Dick Baxter had been the American judge, and as I told you, uh, Dick Baxter had died uh, early. And so Steve Schwebel was uh, elected as his successor. And he, Steve, had a very long career on the court, I think something like 19 years in the course of which he became president. And he wrote many judgments, uh, some of them of great importance. And he, was, he dissented from the, uh, the court in the case between Nicaragua and the United States, a very powerful dissent in which he was very critical of evidence that had been given on the part of Nicaragua, which he believed to be untrue. And this was subsequently shown to be the case uh, in publicly revealed items some years later. But Steve Schwebel I've known for years, and we are very close friends, and he, he is a very considerable international lawyer, most, most eminent. And the, the other living international lawyer whom I would like to single out is Prosper Weil. Uh, Paris, a uh, professor of international Paris University, uh, a couple of years older than I am, but a great mind, uh, a very, very fine international lawyer, a beautiful thinker, uh, constructive, forward-looking, uh, a deep analyst, and he's um, uh, written a great deal, but notable amongst his books is the one on maritime delimitation, which, which emerged from his participation in the case between Libya and Malta in which we worked together on that very subject. So there you are. I mean, I could go on for hours well, talking about these people, but I think we have to have a stop to it. Yes, well, I mean, actually, you've worked on a number of cases with him, um, including the Barcelona traction case, the Beagle Channel case, uh, you mentioned Libya and Malta, Bahrain, and then, of course, in the Laguna del Deserto case. Yes, um, I think that's right. Uh, yeah. I, I'm not, not, not sure that he was in Laguna. Well, it was actually an arbitration. Sorry? The arbitration. Is that he, he was in there with me, was he? I, I'd forgotten yeah. that. He's, no. He was on Chile's side with you. I see, yes, yes. good. Well, I remember I was on Chile's side. I, I can't always <laughs> remember with whom I worked. Yeah. But, but um, I, I go back to the very beginning of my friendship with Prosper Weil, which was when we were both in the Barcelona traction case, but on opposite sides. He was for Spain and I was for Belgium. But we were each allotted the same section of the case relating to damages and reparation. And 
that was how I came to know him because there is no better way of uh, uh, judging or, or being enabled to judge the quality of a lawyer than to have him dealing with the same part of the case as you're dealing with because you can then see his strengths and sometimes his weaknesses. Well, having gone through all the personalities, perhaps we can step back and survey your career, Sally, through what you call your regrets. Yeah, I suppose that uh, at this stage in my career, uh, it's appropriate to, to identify the few points of regrets. Uh, I think that one regret I have is that uh, I didn't develop my knowledge of languages. When I first became involved with Chile in the Palena case back in the early 60s, I should have learned Spanish. I didn't then, and that has always been a great disadvantage to me ever since. And I can only say to, to others who uh, follow in my kind of activity that, uh, that you really need to know French and Spanish at, at the very least. Uh, but more substantively, my regret is that I didn't convert uh, many of my oral contributions and even uh, professional contributions into academic articles. Uh, there are uh, people who have the gift of being able to uh, advise on a matter or appear in a case and then write about it in uh, objective academic terms. Uh, I was never able uh, to do this. I think largely because I uh, <coughs> labored under the restraint common at that time at the, at the English bar that you never did write about the cases in which you were involved. Uh, I'm also sorry that on the academic side I didn't uh, write up into a book some of the courses of lectures that I gave, but principally my lectures on international organization. I was lecturing on international organization I think for uh, 25 years uh, and uh, I, I had an approach and there was a certain novelty in which I was doing, in what I was doing, and there was no uh, significant uh, textbook or, or study of, of the law of international organization until Schirmers produced his book. But uh, I could have and should have written up a work on that, and I very much regret that I, I didn't uh, do it. I also regret the fact that I didn't follow my father's advice. Uh, when he went to the international court, uh, he did say to me that uh, I really ought to take over from him the editing of Oppenheim's International Law. Uh, I was a, a, a rather a, a foolish and arrogant young man. I said, no, I'm not going to edit Oppenheim. I'm going to write my own book. Well, of course, I didn't write my own book. And uh, after my father died, the editing of Oppenheim languished for quite a number of years until it was taken up by... Uh, Robbie Jennings and Arthur Watts, who between them did an outstanding job. But I'm sorry, I didn't, didn't follow my father's advice. Uh, <coughs> there are other things, I mean, I'm always sorry about being forgotten. I, I worked for the Australians for three years in what I believe was deemed to be a very successful tenure of office as the legal advisor of their Department of Foreign Affairs. But when I left Australia, I had just, so to speak, passed out of their ken. Uh, before I left, there was a lot of talk about, oh, yes, we'll keep up, we'll send you uh, questions for opinion, but, but they never came. And one also regrets the fact that sometimes one has begun 
a case or done cases for a country, and then when further cases came along, for some reason they had forgotten me. Maybe they just thought I was getting too old and, and, and gaga uh, to, to continue. But uh, I'm always sorry when, when those sort of relationships uh, terminate. Uh, and I think the last thing that I might mention as being sorry about is that I didn't really keep up sufficiently with my old pupils. Uh, I have from time to time had pupils with whom I had a, a very friendly relationship, but they withered away. I don't think it's their fault entirely, largely my fault because I was preoccupied with academic and professional work. But uh, now I look back, I can see how many I would like to have known better. Well, Sir Eli, what would you say have been your main achievements in the light of the aspirations you would have had as a young lawyer setting out on your career half a century ago? Well, I suppose I've been a good practitioner. Uh, I think that uh, I have a, a certain type of mind which uh, is capable of uh, dealing in a constructive and imaginative way with the legal issues that, are con that confront me in relation to any particular case. I, I think that's perhaps, if I, I mean, I haven't written a, a, a great deal. I've done some things. I've taken certain initiatives in the field of international law. I, I promoted the British practice in international law. I took on the editing of the international law reports in 1960. In, in, in that activity, I was initially greatly helped by Gillian White, who then went off to be professor at Manchester, and in recent years, well, the last 20 years, have been vastly aided by Christopher Greenwood. But in, I, I suppose my contribution has been in, keeping, in helping to keep these important publications uh, going. Uh, I think that the, the most exciting period of my activity has been were the three years that I spent as legal advisor to the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs in the period 1975, 6 and 7. There I was at the very cutting edge of international law. Although I uh, was notionally sitting in an office in Canberra, thousands of miles away from Europe, uh, the, the cable system was such that I would know instantly what was going on in the world, particularly, for example, in international organizations like the United Nations. If I wanted a document, I could ask for it uh, by cable, and it would be on my desk within a couple of days. Of course, today, all these things happen even faster. But those three years uh, when I was in Australia, or working for the Australians, uh, really were a wonderful three years. I spent, of course, half of those three years outside Australia because I was the deputy leader of the Australian delegation at the Law of the Sea Conference and at the United Nations the General Assembly. But I, I got to know people. I was able to, to make an impression. My, my uh, ability uh, to speak uh, clearly and, and sometimes forcibly was valued. All in all, I think that was probably uh, one of the best periods of my life. But I really not had anything to, to complain about. I had other exciting moments. I mean, the period when I was ad hoc judge in the Bosnian case was also immensely instructive. And again, the ability to, to, uh, <coughs> to mix with other international lawyers on the court and to seek to influence them uh, in certain directions, uh, that was important to me. Well, 
I must thank you so much for these fascinating accounts, Sayadi. Really extremely interesting. Thank you. Well, I'm delighted to have been, uh, I hope, of some help to you. And I hope that the things that we've recorded over the last few sessions don't contain too many errors or omissions, or that I've not said too many things to upset my colleagues. Thank you. Well, we got through that all right, didn't we? We did.